This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Uh, so today uh, we're going to start again with the keynote speech, and um, in a way is um, is uh, uh, symmetrical to the one we had yesterday. Yesterday, John Taylor talked about the kind of macro connections between. Uh, you know, uh, trade liberalization and uh, and some uh, macro implications of so exchange rates and exchange rate diplomacy. Um, today, uh, Santiago Levy is going to go to the opposite uh, uh, side, which is uh, the, the micro connections of, uh, of adjustment processes. So if you go through a process of trade liberalizations, there will be, as we saw in some of the papers yesterday, implications for for poverty, for uh, readjustment and the like. Uh, so you might want to think um, about social protection, about social in, uh, uh, interventions. And uh, Santiago is probably one of the best people to uh, talk about uh, this, these uh, issues uh, in the world, I believe. He, um, he has spent uh, quite a few years in Mexico in government, uh, first as a deputy finance minister in the Zedilla administration, and he was uh, responsible for uh, the um, introduction uh, and the, the design and the introduction of Progresa, which is uh, some, something uh, which has been quite influential and quite um, amazing uh, in many, many respects. Um, and, and then uh, from, uh, uh, from there he moved on to uh, be the head until uh, uh, very recently of the Instituto Mexicano de Seguro Social, which is Social Security Mexico, which runs both uh, older social pro, uh, the, uh, all the health, uh, health um, uh, system, the national health system, and the pension system. And um, so he has been thinking a lot about uh, social programs and. Uh, and, and has been doing this work during a period in which Mexico went through uh, some important um, uh, reforms, including trade liberalization. So uh, Santiago today is going to share with us some thoughts about, uh, about these issues. Thank you very much. Thank you, Horacio, and thank you for inviting me to be here. It's, it's really a pleasure to, to have a chance to share some thoughts in, in an audience that was uh, not my audience for the last five years, so it's, it's quite nice to be here this morning, and I thank you for the opportunity. I, I want to kind of tell two papers at the same time. It's a story about adjustment to a major trade reform, in particular to NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and focus on the distributional implications and the political economy side of the adjustment. Uh, part of what I want to share with you is a paper that uh, I wrote with Sweterbein Weinbergen, which is a Dutch economist who used to be at the World Bank uh, some years ago, and that came out in the American Economic Review in 1995. And it's interesting to ask what we thought then and what happened later in terms of the social policy and distributional impacts of a major trade reform. The focus is agriculture, but think of it generally as a framework in which a major trade reform has large distributional implications and in which you don't have lump sum transfers in the traditional sense of trade theory to carry out compensations. And I'll talk a little bit at the end about the problems of commitment mechanism to carry out this and why some of these trade reforms might be rationally objected to by the potential beneficiaries. Um, I want to focus on Mexican agriculture and to give some background to some of you. Um, 
Maize in Mexico is like rice to many Asian countries. It is a central commodity. It is grown in about 40 to 50 percent of all the agricultural land of Mexico, and it employs about one-third to 40 percent of all rural workers in the rural areas. So it's a very important commodity from that point of view, but it's also the input into tortillas, which is the staple product for consumption in the diet of both urban workers and, and rural workers. Um, maize in Mexico is grown in two types of land. Rain-fed land, which for these purposes you can think of it as low-quality land with some you know, steepness to it, and irrigated land, which is sort of high-quality, high-productivity land. This distinction between irrigated land and, and rain-fed land matters a lot because not all maize producers are poor. There's a large set of maize producers who are subsistence producers and who at the margin might be net buyers of maize and participate in the market and sell labor depending on conditions in the labor market. Then there's a set of medium-sized maize growers also in rain-fed lands who basically produce for the market. And then there's a very large irrigated farmers who also have land and produce maize. And prior to NAFTA, maize was substantially protected with a time surprise that was double the world price. Mexico has no comparative advantage in maize compared to the United States. In the United States, you call it corn. There's some slight uh, quality differences between American corn and Mexican maize, but for practical purposes for the argument, we can think of it as perfect substitutes. So there are four sets of people in rural areas that matter landless rural workers who sell labor in the rural labor market, subsistence producers who produce maize and maybe net buyers or sellers of maize or of labor, medium-scale producers of maize in rate lands, and large-scale producers of maize in irrigated lands. And as I mentioned, maize is a very important input into tortillas. Tortillas is the main consumption staple of urban workers, and as a result, the government intervened doubly. It raised the price of maize above the world price in the rural areas, and it lowered the price of maize below the world price in the urban areas so that urban consumption, urban workers were subsidized. And to sustain this very large difference between the world price, the rural price, and the urban price, there was a government agency called CONASUPO that would do all sorts of interventions in the market, control imports, have the quotas, uh, produce the tortillas, do the subsidy, sort of a, a major nightmare in terms of, of what it did. But it, this, this was a sustainable equilibrium. During the negotiations, and I had the opportunity to participate in those, the American agricultural lobbies put opening of Mexican agriculture at the, as one of the key elements of the negotiations. If Mexico was going to benefit from access to U.S. manufacturing and all that, then part of what the U.S. wanted in return was access to Mexican agriculture, and particularly um, to exporting grains, basic grains. So the issue of maize protection took a central importance at the time of the NAFTA negotiations. What the discussion at that point was, was try to think of a situation in which you have to open agriculture. There are clear efficiency gains from opening agriculture, and these efficiency gains, Sweater and I, in a general equilibrium model, measure them to be around 0.6% of GDP. So they're large, and the distortions induced in labor allocation and in consumption are very large from this distortion. So the efficiency gains to be had from maize allocation are very big, but you don't have lump sum transfers to do the compensation, and politically, Mexican, uh, politically Mexico, unless you do something, 
agriculture cannot be opened. So this was a setup. So we worked out a, a model in which there are four inputs, irrigated land, rain-fed land, capital in the urban areas, and labor, in which labor could migrate from rural areas into urban areas, equi equilibrating utility differentials between rural and urban areas. And we need to, there were four households in the rural areas, I mentioned them already, subsistence landless peasants, Subs um, landless peasants, subsistence producers, medium-sized and large-scale, and then urban workers and capital workers. And we wrote down sort of these, you know, general Cuban models. These were very much in fashion 15, 20 years ago. I don't know whether that is the fashion today still or not, but we worked very strongly on this. We made this model dynamic, and this model had a, an adjustment period in which all these changes would take place, tariff changes would go up and down, and then there was a steady state, and you calculate all the standard calculations of present value discounted utility, and you do all the welfare calculations. What you find is that the distributional effects of opening Mexican agriculture were very regressive, even though there were large efficiency gains. As the price of maize would come down, the rents held by rain-fed farmers would come down, the capitalized value of land would come down, because uh, the land prices before incorporated the protection, you take away the protection, the capitalized land values go down. And given the crop composition in the rural sector, the demand for rural labor would go down. And this would, even comp this would not compensate the fact that the price of maize as consumers would go down. So real wages in the rural areas would go down. Landless workers would suffer. Subsistence workers would also suffer. Rain-fed farmers would also suffer because the capitalized value of land would fall, and it would fall substantially by about 25%. Real wages would be falling by 10%. And through migration, urban wages would also fall a little bit as rural workers try to shift part of the burden of the lower wages into the urban areas. And as urban wages would come down, uh, quasi-rents on urban capital would go up. So the rich Mexican you know, capitalists would get rich on the reform, the Mexican agricultural people would get rich on the reform, and everybody else would lose on the reform, particularly the poorest to the poor. And you had to do this reform because unless you did it, there was no NAFTA. So social policy and a set of social interventions that could compensate the, distribution, the negative distributional effects of the reform were central. Um, thought about that way, it was clear that maize was a very bad anti-poverty policy and a very bad rural employment policy. It was a very bad one because first, it created large efficiency gains to get this result, and second, because it was permanent, because there was no mechanism by which eventually these people would not require maize protection. In fact, the incentives were precisely aligned in the direction of continuously seeking maize protection. So, in the model that, that I'm trying to describe, and I brought the paper, and I can leave a copy of the paper uh, for, for so that are interested, we worked out a path in which assuming that landless workers had no access to credit or to future loans to smooth out consumption, in which there were no lump sum transfers, the government could actually compensate the effects of the reform, exploiting the large differences in quality of rain-fed land and irrigation land. And for other reasons that I don't come in here having to do with water rights and land rights in Mexico, there had been systemic underinvestment in agriculture in Mexico, particularly, there were large unexploited opportunities to convert rain-fed land into irrigated land. So, a program was explored, and you know we consulted the engineers and all the all this other stuff and the cost, by which a share of the rain-fed land 
could be with public investment converted into irrigated land. And this would take some time. But you can convert enough of the share of the rain-fed rain land into irrigated land, and this would have two positive effects. First, irrigated land is more labor-intensive than rain-fed land, so this would stimulate the demand for labor, but do so not artificially, but as a result of productivity. And secondly, the land holdings of agricultural people would go up in value because they would have a mix of rain-fed land and a little bit of some irrigated land as some of the rain-fed land was converted into irrigated land. And this would also stimulate the demand for labor during the transition as you did all these irrigation works. We're talking about a major project in Mexico and would smooth down migration. Eventually, you did want since people to move to the urban areas, but you wanted to do a, 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 a short one. So we worked out a gradual path. We calculated the differences in efficiency gains if you do a gradual liberalization over seven years versus a one-shot liberalization, you know, cold turkey, in, in one year. And the loss in efficiency gains of doing a gradual liberalization were not very large. And there was not a commitment problem because you, which is the usual argument for a turkey, you know, for a cold turkey liberalization, because you were embedding the liberalization in an international agreement. So gave you the commitment mechanism by which the liberalization was credible, even though it was going to be gradual. And the path of adjustment would ensure that the utility of landless workers and the utility of agricultural producers at every single point in time would be no lower than the without NAFTA path, and that, of course, in present value, everybody would be the same. And we negotiated with the Americans that adjustment to maize would be over a long-run period, and in fact it was agreed that maize would be open to, America, to, to free trade over 15 years, and the date finishes in 2006-2007, uh, so next year is going to be a very important year, and that's why I want to come back to a little bit what happened. Um, so we entered uh, the um, NAFTA, and I want to discuss a little bit the commitment problem that happened. The agreement was the government moves first in a game theoretic sense to signal its intention to really compensate those that are going to lose by the reform and starts agricultural investments that are raising the value of land holdings of people and are also raising real wages in the rural areas. And then as this is happening, tariffs and protection to agriculture begins to go down and you go on a transition path. And under these conditions, NAFTA was voted by the Mexican Congress. Um, at the time this happened, I didn't realize that one year later I was going to be the deputy finance minister, and I had to put the money for this. And what is very important and sort of interesting to realize is that there was another shock at that time. NAFTA was signed, but we had a major economic crisis in 1995. And the asymmetric commitment the trade liberalization is committed in an international treaty, but the compensation program is not committed anywhere, generated a result in which gradually agriculture has been liberalizing as a result of entering NAFTA, but because there was a major economic crisis in 1995, the budget had to be cut by 1% of GDP in that year, and because the government's priorities were tied to an IMF loan and the big adjustment package on the macro side, the compensation package eventually was not done. 
And this had major implications for social policy in Mexico and for, the, for people's perception about NAFTA. The efficiency gains are there, and this big agency that intervened subsidizing tortillas and doing all this stuff was eventually liquidated and closed down in 1999. But agriculture is not adjusting. And as a result of the lack of the compensation program and the program that would increase the value of land, what is happening now in Mexico is that producer subsidies for agriculture are coming back under the table and maize production is not coming down. In a year and a half from now, all quotas, there was a tariff and there was a quota and the liberalization process included sort of a, an easing of the tariff and an enlargement of the quota as you went along. By 2007, the transition path finishes and there will be completely free trade between Mexico and the U.S. And 15 years later, Mexican agriculture has not adjusted to a free trade agreement that was signed 10 years ago, 12 years ago, in 1993, and started in 1994. And the government's credibility is now down to nil, because the government's credibility was, we are going to compensate and carry out a compensation program for all the people who are going to lose out of trade. And now nobody believes this. And there is some talk in Mexico of reversing NAFTA in the chapter of agriculture. And out of the three presidential candidates that we have going on today, at least one has expressly committed that if he turns out to be the president, up until a few weeks ago he was the leading candidate in the, in the elections, the, one of the things that he will do is he will renege on the agricultural chapter of NAFTA. And the costs to Mexico are potentially immense because, of course, the Americans are not going to sit by if Mexico reneges on the agricultural chapter of NAFTA. Something else will happen in some other part. But this is a course in which what you realize is that the trade opening made a lot of sense. The efficiency gains were all there. Protection was really not working. On the, in the absence of lump sum transfers, you had to do something to, pr to protect people. You could design a program that could do it. Gradualism would give credibility to the program. But the asymmetric commitment problem in which governments have no mechanism to actually really engage in the compensation program generates a result that 10 years down the, down the road might put you back into a situation that you were trying to solve 10 years before. As a result of all this, we've tried to change a little bit the implementation of social policy, and um, that's where Progressa comes in. We tried to design an alternative set of program that could also do what in, theory, what in trade theory we'd like to think of Lump sum transfers, they're really not lump sum transfers in that sense, but that could do direct income transfers to the poor bypassing the relative price structure. And Progressive fits into the story. Forget about the human capital considerations and the you know, conditionality. Progressive fits into the story as a tool that was developed later to try to carry out income transfers to the poor that bypass the commodity prices and that bypass trade protection. It is a real open question whether this will be sufficient to avoid a reversing back to protection or whether this will be you know, um, enough and, and Mexico can continue opening agriculture. The political economy of it is, is fascinating. It's fascinating because now 
agricultural producers who are the ones who could potentially gain the most from NAFTA in the agricultural chapter, particularly with the American opening on the U.S. side for exporting fruits, vegetables, and all that, are opposing NAFTA, and they are correct in doing so, given the fact that the government reneged on its commitment because it had no way to actually carry out this commitment, despite the fact that the people who were doing it, I include myself, were extremely aware that reneging on the commitment was going to be very costly, even, but at that point, it was optimal to renege on the commitment. So this is a little bit the story that I want to put. And I want to close with a little bit of the discussion that Tien and Horacio were having yesterday. We're asking ourselves the question, why in many Latin American countries, or at least in Mexico, many of these reforms that make a lot of sense to a lot of us, and, and I still believe they make a lot of sense, are now being pushed back, or at least are, are the, the pendulum is beginning to swing. And I think that in the end, it's an institutional problem that in economist language is some of these countries, at least Mexico, don't have the institutional mechanisms to give credibility to medium-term commitments to compensate people from the effects of these reforms. And even though there are large welfare gains to all, the distributional side of it is not taken care of because there are no institutions that can credibly deliver the redistributions that are required to make this politically sustainable. And that's why when this, you know, the, after some time, it's part of the story in my idea. And I think there's one concrete example in which this is happening. So I'll stop there because I don't know whether you want to ask some questions or not. I, I, it's sort of an interesting story for somebody who is an ex-trade guy like one of you and, and likes to share these thoughts with you. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, let's have some questions. Uh, Judy. to me, it could as well be just a story of political will. I mean, there are lots of different ways that you could cut what occurred. I mean, it could be that there was um, a financial crisis in Mexico and the Mexican government just chose to use its scarce resources in a way that didn't compensate the main producers, which is what happened. Or it could have been a story in which we had very bad negotiators because what you could have done is come to the United States and asked for an agreement as part of NAFTA that there would be direct transfers to the, in some form from the U.S. to Mexico to compensate, but no one asked, asked for that. You know, the notion that it was, that there was any kind of uncertainty on the part of anyone who was watching this, even from the United States, that Mexico would have an issue with compensation, since it's never compensated before, you know, it, it, it's not as if, you're asking them to, it, it, it's like no one believed they were going to do it to start with. So, so, so I would say that, that if I was going to look for an explanation for this, uh, you know, credibility, maybe being able to make a credible commitment, you know, it just covers up really the underlying dynamic of what was going on in Mexico, which was, you know, bad government, you know, a uh, not enough voice for the majority of the people who were on the land, the, and a very bad negotiators with NAFTA, a uh, kind of fiscal... Um, uh, instability that people knew was going to just erupt because it erupts every X number of years in Mexico anyway. I mean, a whole number of things where credibility is so low on the list. So that's what I would say, yeah. Should we take a few? On the credibility issue, uh, you rightly said you got credibility for trade reform by signing NAFTA. Now, if one were to think about the other side, namely the uh, you know, doing the investment in agriculture to, to the, uh, increase the proportion of uh, irrigated land, uh, 
Now, why not a, an agreement, say, with the World Bank for a loan to finance that part of the uh, program, namely investment, and thereby gain credibility for that part of the program as well, instead of leaving it to, to the domestic uh, budgetary situation, uh, determine whether or not that uh, investment is going to be financed. You mentioned that the trade liberalization was going to, the estimates were that it would raise the real returns to urban capital. Was there any attempt or thought given to taxing those gains from urban capital as a way to help finance the uh, compensation package, the investment in agriculture? It seems like a very interesting uh, uh, credibility issue that you're pointing out. I think that's it's fascinating. And the uh, one question that comes to mind, a little bit like Judy's, uh, is uh, why the uh, negotiators either at the time of NAFTA or now don't adjust the agreement. And one possibility would be uh, that the U.S. actually uh, commits to try to uh, pay for this uh, adjustment. Another would be just treat it very uh, symmetrically to the commitments of the border measures and to negotiate uh, agreements about the uh, about the uh, adjustment uh, uh, policies that are, would be put in place in Mexico that are uh, possibly um, uh, uh, enforced through uh, the threat of retaliation. So just as the, uh, the threat of retaliation enforces the uh, border measures to stay low. Uh, it's what you're, the story you're telling seems to suggest that it's in the U.S. own interest to make sure that the uh, adjustment policies are actually put in place in Mexico. Otherwise, the agricultural chapter is going to be taken away, possibly, and so the U.S. loses. So in that sense, you know, once you start talking about a commitment story for trade agreements, I think it actually makes a lot of sense to be thinking about negotiating over internal measures as well as border, because the, a lot of the commitment may well be about internal measures. And in that case, um, why not, uh, either, either before or now, why not uh, think about uh, you know, negotiating some, some credibility uh, in that sense? A few comments. I, you know, first, you, know, you might um, take some solace in uh, the fact that uh, developing uh, developed countries haven't been so great at uh, not all developed countries have been so great at uh, creating um, social safety nets and adjustment mechanisms uh, for the social dislocations associated with trade opening. It, you know, obviously, it varies widely um, with the United States not being so great at it. Um, in terms of, uh, uh, but some developing countries, by the way, are of course doing a good job of building a social safety net. Uh, uh, my understanding that China is, um, you know, ironically, you know, this this Maoist country is actually uh, didn't have much of a social <coughs> safety net, but is actually creating one uh, in the wake of the uh, 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 adjustments associated with uh, WTO accession. But um, in terms of how to how to address this problem, I don't think that. Um, uh, you know, I think that a renegotiation of NAFTA will be a lot trickier than is being suggested. And I don't think it's just a question of dropping the agriculture chapter because um, the U.S. was sort of had, had a, a large constituency that was a big net winner for agriculture. So I think if you reopen agriculture, you reopen the entire text. So I think that's not... Uh, that's going to be very problematic. And you reopen agriculture and you immediately bring in 35 senators you know, that are going to be very upset. It's, it, it, it's, it's a big problem. Two um, things do strike me as a possibility. First of all, safeguards. 
snapback in some way, some, some use of agricultural, safe, the agricultural safeguards mechanism in NAFTA. And the second thing is um, not necessarily uh, World Bank, but North American Development Bank, which is currently restricted to uh, addressing problems with only 100 kilometers of the border. But that could be reopened because um, NADBank funds have been greatly underutilized. I mean, they've met nowhere near the projections of uh, loans and loan guarantees that were expected, and they're just sitting on essentially a pile of money. So that may be another uh, way to go. Okay, <clears throat> maybe you can give a chance to Santiago to sure. reply. To um, th thanks, everybody, for th for their comments. It might just be a semantic issue if you want to call it bad government or, or lack of credibility. At the end of the day, it's basically the same phenomenon. It's, it's a government that is incapable of carrying out an adjustment program to compensate the negative distributional consequences of a trade reform. Uh, because the guys who negotiated were not good enough because the... the, the it, it really is just a semantic issue. At the end of the day, I'm calling attention to these trade reforms, which make a huge amount of sense, which have mechanisms to make them credible through international treaties, which have efficiency gains, also, in some occasions, have large distributional consequences. And unless these are attended to, these will eventually revert. And even though you identify them and you measure them and you propose the measures to actually correct these distributional consequences, the institutional setup of these governments, they don't have multi-year budgets, they don't have bills in agriculture like five-year bills for constitutional reasons, so you can't pass a law to commit resources for five years, don't have, and that's the point, don't have the institutional infrastructure to sustain these reforms. And that's why these reforms sometimes begin to revert. So it's a bit of a semantic issue. Precisely your point, Tien, is what we wanted. Uh, Sweater was at the bank then, and we were trying to negotiate a big loan, and this loan was going to be part of the, of the judgment, and that was ideal. And in fact, the loan was contingent on the agricultural investments, not on the trade reform. Right. Because the trade reform was already through, the, through NAFTA, so we didn't need a commitment for that. Um, the problem is that in December of 94, when the peso went, you know, right, then all money was for the rescue package. We had to put together $55 billion and forget about investments in anything. It was a matter of just avoiding an, a national, you know, default on, on the debt. And once you get into that logic, it, it's extremely difficult to go back into this other logic um, because, you know, your banks go default and then you have to rescue your banks and blah, 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 blah. So, um, for, for many reasons, there are these shocks that come after the trade reforms which are unexpected and which shift the optimal course of action to the government at that particular point. It was optimal for us then not to do the investments because the laws from doing them versus the loss from the doing. The, you know, if we didn't pay the, the, foreign, the debt and default it, the, the cost to the country being humongous, you know, unmeasurable. Um, I agree with what was said earlier. Negotiating NAFTA, and from my point of view, it's almost unthinkable. First, because I don't think NAFTA would go through the US Congress again, and certainly because NAFTA would not go through the Mexican Congress again. 
So it's either take NAFTA as is and try to make the best of it, or go back to the pre-NAFTA situation in which, you know, who knows where that would end. It's, it's an extremely difficult problem, and there are very large interests in the U.S. behind this. Um, so I think that's a, a little bit of the question. Now, can you borrow more money and all that? You can, but this is now 10 years down the road. Should we have put into the text something which was very novel at the time? We tried to negotiate some money from the Americans to give us some kind of a Marshall Plan as part of the trade opening and all that, but President Bush's father uh, at that point said that if that was on the table, he wanted Pemex and oil on the table. Um, and, uh, you know, that's uh, impossible. So that, that couldn't be done. So within the political constraints, I think NAFTA was a, was a fairly well-negotiated treaty that certainly did bring a lot of efficiency gains to Mexico that, on balance, in my personal point of view, has been extremely positive for Mexico, but that some of the distributional issues were not dealt with properly and are going to come back to haunt us. On uh, uh, trade, I think once you open that door, that uh, any domestic policy instrument is also up for negotiations, international negotiations. Now you open the road for labor standards, you open the road for environmental standards, you open the road for uh, domestic monetary policy, you open the road for anything being uh, up for discussion uh, in international fora. And that's a dangerous, uh, slippery slope down which I wouldn't want Mexico or any developing countries to go. The only point I was trying to make uh, is uh, because at some level I agree completely with TN, but I think there's an important issue here, and that is what these trade agreements are trying to do. And the point I'm making is to the extent that we're talking about here about a trade agreement that seems in large part to be trying to establish, uh, solve a commitment problem for Mexico, uh, as opposed to trade agreements that are trying to solve different kinds of problems, international kinds of problems across governments, if it's solving a commitment problem, then I think there's actually uh, quite a strong reason why you wouldn't necessarily want to limit your agreement to border measures, because many of the commitment problems will be internal. And whereas if it's solving a problem across governments, you do want to limit your commitments to border measures. So in those kind of agreements, I agree with you completely. There's no reason to move into a country's internal measures if the problem is the border measures, or if the problem is trade. But if it's a commitment story, and this, what I found really interesting about this is I, it's a nice twist on the commitment story that is about the commitments to pay for adjustment that only, that will, only if that adjustment occurs will allow the border measure commitments to be credible. I think that's a nice uh, twist on the commitment story. But it's just an example of a story where the commitment problem is an internal measure, and so there's no particular reason why you wouldn't want an external thing like a trade agreement to help you make those commitments. Why not? Interestingly, it's the U.S. who should be more interested in that part of the commitment. Exactly. So that leads to the credibility, yeah. because then the U.S. has the credibility to say, if you don't follow through, on your, your adjustment policy, we will retaliate because it's in our interest to do so, right. so that you do, and therefore the NAFTA stays. should keep our agreements at the border. But the reality is the world has really changed over the last 20 years. And the, the WTO is not only about border measures anymore. Um, 
like it or not, we're there. And if the issue is a Mexican government that has a commitment issue because it has a, uh, the budgeting, uh, the, the way they budget is year to year, they have, um, they, they, there's a problem with the political system, why wouldn't we want to imagine that you want to use an international agreement to commit to also a, a, a domestic policy that, that is in everyone's enlightened long-term interest? If, if you're thinking that uh, a Mexican government that can't carry out redistribution is going to be forced to renege, wouldn't it be better to imagine some kind of use of an international agreement to have the Mexican government not only commit to keeping the border open, but commit to doing the kinds of things that, that, that it's required to do to get political support to keep the, to keep the, the, measurement go, the, the measure going in the future? So, so, you know, it seems to me we, we, we have to be, we, we shouldn't sort of be pie in the sky about, about the way the world looks now. You know, globalization has all these different implications, and every time you, know, you do these agreements, you know, we know fairly well what's going to happen. You know, actually the models were pretty good. My, my guess is your models were excellent about predicting what was going to happen. It happened just the way we knew it was going to happen, but we didn't think about a, a whole source of remedies that, would, that, that maybe would have meant that there would be continued political support on both sides of the border in order to keep NAFTA going, which is, you know, everyone agrees is a good thing. <laughs> would have a film of today's session, and they were starting from scratch with NAFTA, and they'd agreed to make some kind of commitment about domestic Mexican policies. Can we be specific about what are the options for that? Uh, would that have meant that Mexico would have found a way to finance this despite the macroeconomic crisis? I think, I think the only way... The more I think about these things, because I'm also now thinking about Progresa and what gives continuity to Progresa, which is you know, the, the other social policy adjustment is, unless you give the poor, who at the end of the day, not a foreign government, but the poor in your own country, some kind of veto power over reforms, unless compensations truly are carried out, you're not going to make it. Now you tell me that's what democracy is supposed to do perhaps in very mature democracies. The real problem is in the functioning of the domestic political system and, and, and the domestic institutions. And you don't want, the, you, you don't want a, a foreign treaty to solve for the absence of the domestic institutions and the faults of the domestic political process, even though they might have negative implications on the foreigners. But for many reforms, and I can think of a lot of the reforms that we have done in Mexico. Telecommunications reform without a regulatory authority that can really do what needs to be done. Banking privatization without a regulatory authority that needs what needs to be done. Unless the institutional framework for the reform to really be carried through is there, the reform is probably going to backfire. And this is an important lesson. And, and it is not a fault of the reform itself. It's a, it's a fault of the lack of an institutional framework uh, that actually permits these things to happen. And we economists are not good at that. I mean, we're not, we're not, we haven't really solved that problem. Did, I hear, did you say you do not want an international agreement to solve a domestic political institution problem? Did you say you don't want that? No, I don't.
Yeah, but, but yeah. see, the problem is systemic. I talked about MACE here, but then would you also write an international agreement to get a regulatory authority for other areas where things happen? Well, this, uh, we are this. I mean, we are on the slippery slope, right? I mean, this is, this is not just, a, you know, we did TRIPS, right? It implicates all sorts of institutional changes, right? We did environment. We have an environment chapter associated with NAFTA that meant a, a, a change in the number of environmental inspectors in Mexico from a dozen in 1990 to something like 500 today, right? These are big institutional changes. Um, when, you, when you go from, um, uh, you know, when you privatize uh, industries, you have to start regulating them and create the institution, institutions <coughs> to do that. And we are doing, we, we, the international community is getting engaged in helping develop these institutions, right? The bank, the fund, USAID spent in, in, um, in 1998, we, uh, the USAID spent $20 million on technical capacity building, right, for trade in the developing world, and we're going to spend $780 million this year, okay? So it's, it, it's happening, right? Uh, there's, a, there's a gray line there, sure. Okay, I, I, I think it's been a really a good discussion, and uh, uh, I will uh, stop here, and uh, I think we Thank should you. move to, <laughs> to the next paper. Thanks very much. And yeah, my <laughs> the preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.